Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. This weekend is, of course, the ANC's policy conference here in Johannesburg at Nesrec. And I suppose, even if we want to be jaded, we've got no choice, at least those of us who are nominally referred to as analysts, columnists, commentators, to tell you, our readers and our listeners, our viewers, what we make of what's going on. I must admit, as I said in my latest piece on Times Live at CO.za, that collapsing onto cynicism, jadedness, and deciding to disengage, particularly from ANC politics, is very tempting. But let's get on with it and at least ask whether that's rational or whether we should care about the policy conference. And if the latter, what are the stakes this weekend and what are the most important contours to be watching out for? Joining me for this conversation is my good friend, Brian Fakir, who also is, and I'm not just saying that because I'm biased as a friend, one of the country's sharpest political analysts who thinks conceptually very deeply about these issues and then applies it to real politics. He also has a fantastic piece out. You can find it by going to news24.com entitled The ANC Policy Conference, Being and Nothingness, Why It Matters and Why It Doesn't. Besides, known to you as a political analyst, Brian Fakir is also Director of Programs at the OWL Socioeconomic Research Institute, ASRI, as well as a member of the Board of Directors at Ephesus Corplan, a development NGO based in my home province of the Eastern Cape. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know this are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Brian, good morning. And thanks for joining us on Times Live. Morning, Steve. It's nice to chat to you again. We've read each other's pieces, and you could see I was trying to write myself into motivation in the first few paragraphs because, on the one hand, I think to myself, you know, it is fun intellectually, it is important discursively, and as commentators for us to get into the detail of the ANC's policy proposals, its stock-taking of policies already you know, past at least, not necessarily implemented. And then there's another part of me that just had bad deja vu where I think, oh my God, another cue for media accreditation, another mic being shoved into a poor analyst's face when I'm playing the broadcasting role or when I'm an analyst myself like you, having to ask questions that I've heard before. Just at the level of effect, which I don't think is unimportant in political discourse, do you feel yourself also as if you're just going through the motions because the ANC doesn't seem to 
change and learn from past behavior, which makes it easy to cut and paste from past conferences. Yeah, like you, I think I eventually took to it with alacrity. Um, from the second paragraph of your piece, I can see you started enjoying yourself because it's just so easy to diss the ANC, which is the <laughs> one thing um, you forgot about. And I mean, they make it, they just make it so easy, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it's repetitive, sometimes prone to hysterics, uh, a lot of scapegoating, uh, you know, gazing at everyone else but yourself. Uh, and, and your misdemeanors. And, you know, you're absolutely right when you argue that they don't have an entitlement uh, to hold office and they behave as if they do. They also proceed in their policy documents to assume that they are the central theater on which the antagonisms in society are going to play out and that they will be able to resolve all of the economic problems and mainstream those people who are marginal. And they fail to account for the fact that yesterday they lost Nelson Mandela Bay. So you're now talking six out of eight metros around the country. Those are the drivers of growth, of advancement, of economics, finance, trade, technology, all of those things, right? They're also the site of redistribution. They generate the resources you require. Now, they've lost influence and authority in all of those areas. So... There's a real existential crisis that's facing the ANC now. And they assume in their papers that the existential crisis is just about the moral posture of the movement. And you wonder, guys, you know, what reality are you inhabiting? Absolutely. And I think that's, that's, that's really where I think our two pieces, the risk of being self-indulgent, complement one another. Because the ANC, as I say in my piece, pretends to be honest when it comes to self-examination. They say, we've got an existential crisis, they're framing. They say, here are two bold problem statements we've got to solve for at the weekend gathering. But then when you look into the minutiae, you find complete and utter dishonesty. I want you to speak into one strand of that dishonesty which the SACP's political report did as well a couple of weeks ago. And I discussed that with Mbazima Shiloa in the last edition of this podcast episode. And it's almost as if whoever wrote that political report with or for Blade and the SACP must have had a hand in exactly the diagnostic elements of the ANC uh, policy documents. Because you pick up and you drill down into this harking back to the idea that um, we have got to look at colonialism of a special kind as the key paradigm through which to understand why society is not a just and equitable space in 2022. It's convenient, but it's also dishonest. Absolutely dishonest because, you know, there's areas that this theory or this conceptualization will explain away, right, for how we are a society as we are shaped by history, the legacy bequeathed by apartheid, the exclusion on the basis of race of people from the economy. So those we take as a given because they are very important. What the ANC fails to ask as a motive force in their language, uh, as you like to say, 
is who's going to be the instrument of this change? They hold the levers of power now. They hold the state and have held the state and government for 28 years. The major areas of social transformation, as you and I both know, given that we grew up partly under apartheid, are health, are education, perhaps aspects of the social welfare services, because they're the springboard through which you enter the economy. On the other side, interventions in the economy are absolutely required, right? So just park that aside for a moment. If you, as the holder of state power and government power, with its attendant resources, in health, in education primarily, why are you spending more money as a, gov- as a movement in government, as an organization in government? Morally correct, defensible, but the outcomes are poor and the outcomes are being felt by the black majority. So if you want to address the race question, there's no point harking back to old theories, which in any event don't explain the new kind of contours of who and where the society are. Previously under apartheid, of course, black South Africans had very little antagonisms and and problems amongst themselves, right? Because there was a common enemy, there was common oppression you faced, the common circumstances and context within which you live. Now that has markedly shifted thanks to the ANC's own policies, which they failed to recognize. But they've introduced new tensions. People fall on the wrong, different sides of the inequality divide. People um, experience uh, unemployment and employment differently. Uh, There's a recent surfacing of of little identities you know sometimes people call it primordial in terms of religion maybe ethnic and so on and of course we've got the perennial perpetual problem of race but addressing as i say the race question will fundamentally be addressed if you look at the transformative aspects of society you have a capable state not corrupt not um, manipulating institutions, not debasing processes and procedures of the institution. And, 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 and then you will affect the lives of black South Africans much more positively. You can have other supply side interventions in the economy, BE, affirmative action, affirmative procurement, uh, industrial policy. Uh, you can even extend it to look at economic policies like um, import substitution, greater amounts of subsidies and, 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 and tariff breaks and, and incentives for particularly black people to enter the economy. You can have all those. But if the state is failing on the basic things because of the ANC's manipulation, debasement of public institutions, crude use of its, of its majority in parliament to shield itself from any kind of oversight and accountability in executive performance. What is the point? Even those of us who will argue, yes, have a stronger state, give it a bigger role in the economy. If you're not doing the basic things right, why should we give you other powers? These are the kind of things the ANC absolutely refuses to um, to countenance. You argue, Eusebius, about you know, the ANC not just repeating everything from different policy conferences, but also the contradictions that emerge, right? Just think organizationally. If two people are arguing, not contesting different ideas on the economy, but are arguing diametrically opposed ideas, even about the nature and character of government, you know, parliamentary sovereignty versus uh, constitutional democracy, how are you going to have a coherent or relatively coherent organization. So there's a big problem here, not just policy-wise. I think that's right. And you sum it up in your 
lucid analysis with this final paragraph, which I want to read for our listeners. Brian writes, which captures what he has just said in equal lucidity. Colonialism of a special type proves to be a handy shorthand for a continued race-based politics of revenge rather than redistribution, based on recidivist policy that undermines rather than promotes social transformation. Colonialism of a special type also allows the ANC to externalize the costs of its inability to contain its internal contradictions and conflicts. In so doing, it has no hesitation in resurfacing latent and residual social antagonisms based on identity cleavages, which assume political primacy in perpetuating social and identity antagonisms instead of solving and extinguishing them. Now, I just want to stay with that for a minute or two longer before we go on to two or three other themes and then wrap it up. It's not that the ANC completely, in its documents, failed to point to some of the problems that are endogenous or internal to it, Brian, but rather that what they do with it, the prominence and the scope they give to it, is where the dishonesty remains. So the ANC will say, for example, in the organizational renewal discussion, over the years we've had many ill-disciplined, greedy, corrupt cadres, and we must spend some time at Nazareth thinking through what is the vision of renewal and how will we make sure that we get rid of corruption and never again have state capture. So there is an understanding that the economic and socioeconomic indices in 2022 can't only be explained through colonialism and apartheid frameworks. But what it doesn't do, and perhaps because this would be a level of self-diagnosis that would be an admission that they should be voted out in the next election, is to go a step further and to recognize that that is the core of the problem. The core of the problem, that corruption has become part of the cultural DNA of the party. And that there's no battle between forces of good and forces of evil, but that there are degrees of evil, degrees of lack of ethics, degrees of lack of servant leadership, and each and every single leader within the NEC, including President Ramaphosa. And it's that level of diagnostic that is missing. And maybe it's unsurprising because it would be an argument to not vote for them. Yeah, it would. I mean, if they have to kind of reflect on on how this came about because they didn't treat parliament uh, as seriously as they should, that they abused their majority in parliament to shield any kind of oversight and accountability, not just on executive performance, but on each member's, uh, you know, hollowing out state institutions, manipulating processes, uh, and and at local level, inflating the tenders, um, getting on superfluous government projects which were not intended in the first place or ratified by the cabinet. And that's precisely we know how state capture happened, right? The two forms. One is impose on government a set of projects and activities that it had no intention of, of doing and was not sanctioned by cabinet. But, you know, everyone wangled their way in through in the Zuma administration. Some of it continued under the Ramaphosa administration. The second is the form of capture which happens through price inflation, tender manipulation, and so on. So those two forms exist and they coexist. And the ANC 
in councils, in provincial legislatures, at the national legislature, uses its majority to shield itself from any kind of probity or anyone else from probity for that matter, as long as a set of internally connected cronies are benefiting. And that's the problem with, you know, when even the legislature and government document, you know, looks at things like electoral reform or, or mention things around the role of parliament, but no, no, no acknowledgement of the ANC's complicity in this blunting of, of parliament, in the blunting of proper executive um, performance and reporting, uh, and forget accountability to the public. We're talking about an ANC accounting to itself It's in its majority in parliament when it refuses to do right. So there's a primary level of accountability and impunity uh, that they simply went about excusing. And you're right. So if you're arguing that if they if they go to that level of self-diagnosis, they are arguing themselves out of power. And perhaps, um, you know, if they need to be genuine about reform internally, that is something they should think about. <laughs> Second last question, but the last two questions are they're really thematic areas. We'll come back to ideas for the last question. Let's set aside, or related to setting aside, I want to ask you about the ANC members that are in town, the 2000 plus. You know, my partner came back from Santon City and said, oh, what's happening? I saw so many ANC regalia people at Santon City. And of course... That's where, as we know from the hearings into state capture, some of them like to go and shop. Um, and no doubt, there will be many drinking holes, B&Bs, that will also do quite well over this weekend. And I'm not anti-drinking, I'm just saying. Isn't the sad reality that this weekend is not about policies? It really is about jostling for positions ahead of the elective conference. And that nerds like yourself, your job require you to suspend real politic and disbelief and get into the content of the policy documents that are on the website. But the reality is that most of these cadres, if we are honest, and this is the problem with the ANC never having successfully organizationally renewed itself, despite resolutions to that effect, going back 10 plus years that the policy conference is a dress rehearsal for the elective conference. Yeah, I, I mean, it's true. I, I guess that's true. I mean, I take it you're not going to Vilakazi Street, obviously, this weekend. Um, it's a place where <laughs> all of the South would be more of the same, I guess. Maybe. No, and I feel sorry for the political reporters, and I'm glad I'm not one of them, who unfortunately have to go and look for what we call in media, as you know, a little bit of color and texture. Um, because poor people can't eat color and texture. And there's a serious point in what I'm making in saying that this is not a festival of ideas. It is ultimately about careerism. It is absolutely. And to your earlier point, I mean, this idea that the policy conference or what they used to call before, uh, and just time it by COVID, the National General Councils, like a dry run uh, and a proxy for the kind of battles which are going to emerge on the on the elective conference floor. 
and and then it suddenly you know people who are associated with certain ideas and policy proposals if those proposals are defeated we take it as an indicator that this is going to be fair complete at the end of the year right and this started largely in 2005 remember when many of the proposals associated with Thabo Mbeki were defeated on the NGC at the National General Council in 2005. Now, there's a degree to which, in your very opening statement, you said something about us watching this for a long time and we can can pull out cultural strands and trends. I'm not sure that this is always true because I do think that... 25, 20 years, maybe a bit short for a tradition to have just developed in the ANC where, you know, they suddenly, uh, the NGC or the policy conference is merely a proxy battle. I think in part it is where you are absolutely spot on is that what it does become is a site for introducing things which sidetrack you from some of the core issues which are raised in the policy document. So suddenly now it's going to become as three provinces resolved, relook at the step aside rule. Important as that is, there's a whole range of other issues which are going to emerge from the conference floor, and that might detract from the fact that uh, people actually go to the plenaries to discuss the policy conference. You've been to enough of these to know that either there's court cases, there's disputes about credentials, or there's someone whose votes have to be isolated because they are, you know, they didn't go through the credential process, and that delays things to such an extent that practically you run out of time to actually have real commissions. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. there's serious stuff in there. Let's give the ANC credit for that. There's there's material to grapple with. I'm just baffled by the fact that listen, you're in incoherent organizations with fundamentally contradictory visions. How are you going to uh, try and 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 navigate your way out of this. You point to the fact that these guys are rehearsing a whole range, in some cases even good policy proposals, that they fail to implement, though they've resolved on this conference after conference. So, you know, maybe some real discussion will take place at the sites we were talking about. But I... I think you're being too generous. I want to introduce my last question, which links to exactly... Firstly, I think you are right from a data point of view. You need to be able to plot more data points on any timeline, qualitatively or quantitatively, before you start talking about patterns. I accept that. But even if every single cater were coming to town with 10 notepads and a zero drinking commitment, let's have a look at what is on the table for them to discuss. And there's one statement that's doing the round on social media, I also included it in my piece, which gives you a sense of the typical quality of language and quote-unquote ideas, heavy scare quotes, in the policy documents. And it reads as follows. The ANC remains the biggest party in many councils where it's not governing. However, the bitter reality is that it has been kept out of government by the growing phenomenon of small opposition parties ganging up to keep the ANC out of office. These coalitions, which have less in common than a crowd of drunkards in a beer hall, are on a crusade to obliterate the defining goals of our national transformation project. Otherwise, they would not all declare the demise of the ANC is the only primary reason they exist. I mean, I don't even need to read the rest. I had images of Pule Mabe mouthing that on TV, kind of the way he did the other night with his weird um, analogy of cash and transfer <laughs> heist. Now... Uh, Brian, you you 
have a foot in the academy and a foot in the public spaces. If one of your students were to write that in, you know, a tutorial assignment that they hand in, you would struggle to take them seriously. Yeah, I think one would have to give, give it 10% for effort uh, and, and end right there. <laughs> I recall as long as you as long as you don't give them A for effort. No, no, no. A, the, the, it's the wrong vowel. Uh, the vowel should be an E for effort. But regardless, I, you know, on another platform a couple of years ago, you brought up the idea of how unconfident the ANC behaves in power. They 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 behave as if they don't have uh, a power and authority, which they do, right? And much of it, of course, previously legitimately earned. We can have a separate debate about. You know, credibility crisis, uh, lurching on legitimation, that's fine. But in what you just read, it reminds me of this point you brought up about being unconfident in power. And one is tempted to tell them, grow up, get a set of balls. You lost the election. There's no, we can have, we can have nice debates about whether if you're the largest party, you should get some representation because the constitution speaks about proportional representation. Uh, of course, it would be a democratic outcome if you were given a stop and some of you were included. But be that as it may, if, when the ANC wins outright in councils, they don't always give, you know, proportion to someone who came a close second and said, here, have one of the portfolios in our local council. So they can't complain about the fact that they are, remain the largest party but are excluded by government. This is how the system that they devised actually works. So if they read the Constitution very carefully, anyone who reads the Constitution very carefully would be able to work out the real incentive structures available in councils, in legislatures at the national level and will be able to use that if the ANC was serious about transformation they don't have to behave the way they do and lament we've been left out or lament the fact that we don't have parliamentary sovereignty when in fact you do the problem is they've used their sovereignty in parliament and they use the majority in ways for, for all the wrong purposes, not for the right purposes. They could have pushed through using the majority a whole range of very transformative policies if they behaved appropriately in the executive. They didn't. Second, they used their majority for the wrong purposes, and we've repeated this ad nauseum, to shield themselves from any accountability and oversight and transparency for that matter, including the president, who still refuses to tell us anything about Palapala. So we, we don't know what to believe. Uh, and and so, so, so this leaves us as the public in a great morass. And I want to conclude in this point, um, Eusebius. If the president is at pains at telling ANC delegates, you know, you must look outward, look at how ANC policies can change the country and serve the society, not inward because people aren't interested in your hysteria and your internal debates and so on, right? So much of that is true. But what example does he as the leader set? What example do ANC members, the ones you're talking about, come into town? Uh, and I dare say you are right. Well, I have to agree with you that many of them may not even have read the policy documents, um, sadly. Uh, yet the space exists for everyone to contribute to it. The, the, the delegates themselves may not have read it. And that will be the undoing of the conference um, because you have a leader who refuses to be honest. And not just that, Abraham. I mean, I want to sneak this in there because your your excell excellence just makes it hard to stop the conversation. If it was only about the ANC, I would be less concerned. 
but the ANC still looms large as, as we've said before in other fora, the biggest, most influential political social movement in the country, regardless of the and the sort of 3% average electoral decline in electoral history in recent times. And in that context, when the ANC sneezes, the country catches a cold. And so as much as it's, you know, tempting to turn off the telly, not listen to a podcast that has a, as its headline, Eusebius and O'Brien tells you about the ANC conference, you can do that with a minuscule party, perhaps, but not with the ANC. Its conference has got national implications and implications for the state of the state. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point here, you started off saying, uh, you know, the big incentives here and it's it's make or break for the ANC. Uh, and tragically, this is important and make or break for the country. The incentives are bigger for the society than they in fact are for the ANC. And that's why it's so vital. Well, there's lots more that we can unpack. We'll do so in the weeks and months ahead. We are compelled to care if for no other reason than our selfish interest as engaged citizens in our democracy overall. And in that context, what happens to the ANC matters, whether we like it or not. Brian, as always, thanks for your insights and thanks for coming on this platform. Uh, Thanks for having me, Sibis. Great to chat to you again.